We uh, have called this series in the past, How to Enjoy Your Bible. And one of the things that I want to say is that God gave us the Bible to enjoy. Now, it's not always enjoyable. The problem can be with us when it isn't. But if we haven't received Christ as Savior, the Bible can be a very confusing matter and will never be understood. Because whether you're old, young, smart, stupid, that's a state of mind, rich, poor, you can uh, not understand the Bible unless you've received Christ as your Savior and the Spirit of God teaches you the Bible. So one of the things the Bible says about itself, we learn that we don't need a teacher, a human teacher, but we do need the Holy Spirit to guide and teach us in the Scriptures. And I trust that as we comment on the Bible and teach the Bible, that the Spirit of God would take the things from uh, that pertain to Christ and apply them to you. But the Bible is to be enjoyed, and if you're not enjoying the Bible, only sin uh, is the reason for that. Whether it is sin because your sins have never been forgiven, and you don't know the salvation from the penalty due to your sins, or whether you just happen not to wash yourself uh, by confessing your sins, and the blood of Jesus Christ washes you from all sin and unrighteousness, if, if Unless you are having the noise of sin in your life, this book is very enjoyable. So we call this series, which is really an introduction to the dispensations of God, how to enjoy your Bible. God made us to enjoy himself, and the way that he gave us to do that, and the only way he gave us to do that, is the Scriptures. So we're taking up the dispensation of conscience today. To, we're introducing the subject. We're following on from the dispensation of innocence Man is no longer innocent after Adam's sin, and we come rolling into Genesis chapter 4, where we open up God's new arrangements for man. And his new arrangements have to do with the consequences of sin and his own provision for sin with Adam and Eve, which, if you remember correctly, was that he made them coats, he gave them a promise, and he kept the way uh, to the tree of life. He also, in his mercy, rather than letting the curse that was due man because of his sin come upon Adam, he, he, the Lord took that curse to the ground and said, Cursed is the ground for your sake. So we have a cursed earth, a sin-cursed ground, and it brings forth thorns and thistles instead of the fruitfulness that it originally was supposed to bring and that was intended. Now, because of man's sin, the ground brings forth thorns and thistles. When we, when I think of thorns, I was thinking today about thorns. I was thinking how our Lord Jesus Christ re- became a curse. He not, he not only bore the curse, but he became the curse for us. And uh, you may recall, if you meditate on his passion and death, something to do frequently, in my opinion, something that has been sorely neglected, you'll remember that he was crowned uh, with thorns as he became a curse. You may also remember that God, in, in connection with Adam's sin and the cursed ground, that he told Adam, in the sweat of your face shall you eat bread. And so Adam was faced with being a sodbuster and sweating. And I'll tell you, I'm far away from that in my in my professional work, it's pretty hard in my work to work up a sweat, but these days uh, you go outside, you work in your yard or whatever it is you may have to do, uh, do a little construction work, and you begin to realize what it is to sweat and what it is to face your own, uh, the consequences of sin in your own self, and it's not a happy uh, realization unless you have the sweet thought 
of the fact that our Lord Jesus Christ sweat in the Garden of Gethsemane. He sweat, as it were, drops of blood, and he took upon himself and became the cursed, finally cursed as everyone who hangs on a tree. And then finally, the final arrangements that God made to close up the one dispensation and to open up the next one was that he placed at the east of the Garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way. And we're introduced to cherubims there. Those are angels. Satan is like unto them, angelically speaking, though not morally. And uh, they had a flaming sword or a burning sword which kept the way to the tree of life. And it, yes, it kept man out. It kept man out uh, because of his sin. It kept man out so that he would not partake of the tree of life and live forever, that unspeakable thought, that man would be the disastrous, live forever in his sin, like Satan will. That's not God's intention for man, and so he kept the way of the tree of life. And of course, keeping the way means two things. Uh, It's not just that he kept man away from the tree of life in his sinful state, but he also kept the way, that is, he protected and preserved the way, so that our Lord Jesus Christ could come 4,000 years later and say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. So there is a way kept. There was a way kept. God always keeps a way. And the way is still available to you. So even here it is now, 6,000 years later, since Adam's sin, and the way is still kept for us. And we're going to learn a little bit more about that way as we look into this dispensation of conscience. I've learned this dispensation to be called that. If I thought it was inappropriate, I'd think up another name. I have a bit of a rude name of this dispensation instead of the dispensation of conscience because I grew up watching television in the late 50s and the 60s, and I remember Disney's World of Color when when it was perhaps the only regular color television show on TV, and I remember uh, Jiminy Cricket. Those of you who remember Jiminy Cricket remember that not only did he spell encyclopedia and teach us all to spell that word, but he also taught us, let your conscience be your guide. And I want to tell you that though that was the advice to my generation, that's bad advice. If you want to look at the conscience and we want to look at this dispensation of conscience, you'll see that it becomes a very poor guide indeed. In fact, your conscience cannot guide you. We learn from the Scripture that the conscience is like an umpire. And one thing an umpire doesn't do is give direction. The umpire waits until the play is done and he calls you out or safe. And that's your conscience. It it, it either justifies you or accuses you. You have a good conscience. You're not condemned in the thing you do. You have a bad conscience. You are condemned in the thing you do. Now, A conscience is no help. An umpire is no help whatsoever, for example, if you want to steal second base. If you're playing in a a game where uh, there are four umpires, he's standing uh, back behind first base, and he's positioning himself so that he can call you out. One umpire is positioning himself so that he can call you out on a pickoff play. That is why he's there. He's there to see if you get picked off and to call you out or safe returning to first. There's another umpire who's positioned himself out inside the second base, and he's positioning himself to call you out or safe 
after you attempt to steal and a throw is made. But he is absolutely no help stealing the base. And so that's your conscience. It can't lead you. If you ask the umpire, should I steal second, he's going to shrug his shoulders. And by the way, while you're asking him, he'll call you out if they, if they pick you off. So your conscience as a guide is not a good guide. In fact, it's especially bad because you can have a bad conscience and it will come up with all kinds of lousy things. And that's what we're going to see in this story, really, of Cain and Abel and the whole dispensation of conscience. Today, we'll take up the birth and careers of Cain and Abel. So we'll start with Genesis 4, verse 1. And Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man, Jehovah. Literally, that's what she said. I've gotten a man, the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel he also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of the fat thereof, and the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou fallen, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, a sin offering lies at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel his brother, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and slew him. Now, that's the furthest I'll take it at this time. Because we want to talk about, first, the birth of Cain and Abel, and then a little bit about their careers and what distinguished them. Notice how the scripture reads. It says, Adam knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain. And then it said, verse 2, and she again bare his brother Abel. That, that, that It does not say that Adam knew his wife again, but it does say she conceived once and bore twice. And so, uh, in my view, uh, there is evidence here, and I believe that they are twins, that uh, Cain was first born and then Abel was next born. Whether or not they're twins, whether or not they were born exactly the same time, I don't think is especially significant, but I, I hesitate to say that because the language seems to indicate there was one conception and two births, which means twins. So, but th that Cain was the firstborn is evident. And the firstborn in the scripture and in life certainly stands in the place of the father. And isn't Cain a chip off the old block? Isn't he a sinner like Adam? And of course, so is Abel a sinner like Adam. But here for the first time, we have a firstborn and a secondborn. We have for the first time in human history the opportunity for the firstborn to take on the rights and privileges of the firstborn which has to do with the blessing of his father, which has to do with the carrying on uh, of the father's position, which has to do with being a priest of God, and which has to do with a double blessing. In fact, the firstborn rights in the Scripture and in life come down to family rulership, family blessing, a, a extra blessing in the family to go along with that rulership, and the priesthood in the family. And you will see in Scripture that in almost every case, if not every case, 
firstborns forfeit these rights because God is trying to teach us that there is the opportunity for forfeiture, and he also is trying to teach us that he surprises us in the way things actually work out. So here are these two uh, born, and one's a keeper of sheep, that's Abel, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And uh, here we have a reverse order. Uh, Abel is given first as a keeper of sheep, Cain given second as a tiller of ground, and so we begin to see really prospectively the favor or grace of God in the life of Abel and the pleasing uh, of God by Abel. Now we have the language of verse 3, which says, In the process of time it came to pass. These words are not wasted words. The Scripture's not uh, not wasting any words. These are all, every word is inspired. This process of time really implies to us there's an appointed time, that, that there is a time that God appointed for Cain and Abel to present themselves before him. And that's uh, God is, uh, commonly does that. He appoints a time when we'll be presented before himself. And here, these two come in different ways. Abel comes one way, and Cain comes another way. And uh, a lot of people want to focus on the fact that Abel came with his flock and Cain came with his fruit. But... Uh, <clears throat> I remember when I was a young fellow, it was presented to me when uh, I went to Catholic school, and they presented to me that, I think I even had a little book with picture, that Abel brought the best that he had of his, the firstlings, which are the fairest and fattest of his flock, and Cain brought a bunch of rotten old fruit. Well, I'm sure that Cain brought the best that he had, and Abel brought the best that he had. But the way that Abel came is different than Cain, and I'm going to read to you a passage that describes exactly how Abel came. This is Hebrews 11 and verse 4, which says this, By faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain, by which he obtained witness that he was righteous, God testifying of his gifts, and by it he, being dead, yet speaks. Here's the way that Abel actually came. Abel came by faith. Well, what does it mean to come by faith? Faith comes by hearing, hearing the Word of God. Just as God had appointed a time, apparently God had appointed a way to come and a sacrifice, and the proper way to have a sacrifice, because Abel came by faith, and he can only come by faith in God's Word. So what we really have contrasting these two is that one comes on the basis of of the grace of God through faith in his word, and the other one comes on the basis of his own works from the work of his own hands. So we have a contrast between Cain and Abel in the way that they come, despite the fact that Abel brought his firstlings out of verse chapter, uh, chapter 4 of Genesis, verse 4, and Cain brought his offering, God answered Abel, with the acceptance of his offering. As the book of Hebrews said, God had respect to Abel's offering. Now, what does it mean that the Lord had respect to his offering? Well, first of all, we need to look, examine what the offering was, and we'll look at that as soon as we come back. So we see in verse 4 that God not only respected Abel's offering, 
but he had respect to Abel. This is the cause, evidently, and we see that through the action of the rest of the passage. This is the cause, evidently, uh, of Cain's reaction. We ought to examine, perhaps, how it is that God lets his uh, faithful ones know that he has respect of their offerings or that they come in the proper way. We can, knowing the rest of the scripture, we can infer that Abel came in the way of God because it is so consistent uh, typically or as a picture with the way God requires. We remember from Genesis, the third chapter, for example, that God coated or clothed Adam and Eve with coats of skin, and and for that he needed to shed blood. I suppose he shed the blood of sheep, I suppose, and made those coats uh, that way. I'm I'm supposing that. I suppose it, it could be another animal, but why would it be? And so Abel's a keeper of sheep, and he brings the a blood sacrifice to God. That's the key here, is that there is a blood sacrifice. Now, these blood sacrifices were certainly not able to take away sin. We learn that from the Scripture there's only one sacrifice. Neither was Abel qualified truly to bring a sacrifice. So his sacrifice would have to be repeated, and that's why we have in the process of time. At the appointed time, there would be the repetitive sacrifice of a lamb. But Abel came according to the word of God, and so God had respect to Abel and his offering. And that is the way that God has respect toward persons Today, the Bible says God is not a respecter of persons. That is to say, God has no prejudice about people. God doesn't care about me more than you, but God does have a respect to the way that we come, because the Lord Jesus Christ is the way. And so while God doesn't have a respect of persons, sinners, God does have respect for the solution and the Savior that he sent, the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the way. And so Abel came, we could say it this way, Abel came with faith in Christ in advance. He saw, he believed the promise given to Adam about the seed of the woman and the seed of Satan and the coming victory that God has planned. He understood that he could have fellowship with God if he came in God's appointed, blood-drenched way. And so he followed God's word. So by faith, Abel, looking ahead. See, if we look at Hebrews chapter 11, in the, in the section where it talks about Abel as the first in the line of those who had that faith, we see that now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen, for by it the elders, and the first of the elders is Abel, listed in this chapter, for by it the elders obtained a good report. Through faith we understand that the ages were framed or outlined by the word of God, so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. And so we see ensuing ages, they're framed by the Word of God. The things we now see are made up out of the things that do not, that do not appear anymore, that, 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 that not only did God create the heavens and the earth, but he framed time around the Lord Jesus Christ, and that this age builds on the last age and so forth. So the ages are framed by the Word of God, and now the Scripture goes through some ages, in fact, it starts out by faith Abel offered unto God a more excellent sacrifice than Cain 
by which he obtained witness that he was righteous. How was he righteous? He's righteous the only way anybody ever becomes righteous. He's justified by the grace of God through faith because he believed in advance on the Lord Jesus Christ. God testifying of his gift, or God testifying of his grace, and by it he being dead yet speaks. Now as we go through the career of Cain and and the end of Abel's career, we'll see that though he's dead, his blood speaks. And God is not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. So now Cain is unhappy. Uh, I was going to suggest to you, by the way, that the way that God shows his approval was likely, it was probable, that when the Lord had respect for the offering of Abel, it's, it's probable that he burnt that offering with fire from heaven. I found five occasions <clears throat> in the Scripture where God did visit with fire from heaven, five being the number of grace, very interesting, where God did visit a sacrifice, uh, visit sacrifices with fire from heaven. He did it when Moses and Aaron first offered a sacrifice at the altar outside the tabernacle. They offered a sacrifice on the altar just outside the tabernacle in the wilderness. First, the Shekinah glory appeared, Uh, You can find this in the book of Leviticus, chapter 9. And God answered that with fire. He consumed the sacrifice with fire. When God called Gideon and called him a brave man of God, he sent an angel to Gideon under an oak tree, and Gideon was called to make a sacrifice on his rock that was right by the oak tree, and God answered that sacrifice with fire. When David was judged, when he was tempted by Satan for numbering the children of Israel, and he came to his repentance and then purchased the threshing floor of Ornan, and the angel of the Lord sheathed his sword there, David built an altar and sacrificed, and that became the site of the temple, but God answered that sacrifice with fire. Later, when his son Solomon built and opened the first uh, temple, David not being allowed to, as he's a man of bloods, the Shekinah glory filled that temple, just as it did the tabernacle in the wilderness, and God answered Solomon's sacrifice with fire. Finally, when Elijah faced off with 450 false prophets in order to persuade the people to turn away from Baal worship orchestrated by Jezebel and push through that weenie Ahab, God answered Elijah's sacrifice by fire. And that's the last time God is going to answer any sacrifices by fire. Now, there will be a time when uh, God's prophet returns, probably Moses and Elijah in the book of the Revelation, for the, la- for the first three and a half years of the final seven years of the children of Israel, and uh, they will call down fire from heaven. But I also believe that there can be false signs and wonders uh, equally uh, like that. We don't need to worry about that. That's not for this time. We'll look at that at a later date in the Scriptures. So now Cain is very upset because God. it's likely that God visited Abel's sacrifice by consuming it with fire, while Cain's sacrifice sits around. Those nice fruits just rot. And uh, Abel is now blessed by God and acceptable to God, and that makes Cain mad. And his, his face fell, it says, uh, the Lord said to Cain. He said, Cain was very angry, and his countenance fell. So we see the evidence of sin in him. We see he didn't come by faith. He hates his brother for it. He hates his brother because his brother came by faith. And let me say, 
Cain is a very religious guy. Cain comes the way of religion. You know, religion is as man's way to God. Faith is God's way to man. And uh, so Cain is a religious man, and uh, he hates his brother. He, is, he hates men of faith, and that's the case. If you're a man of faith today, religious men hate you. In fact, we'll see how Cain really moves along with his religion. But very possibly you'll say to me, well, calling Cain a religious man is not fair. That is, is something that you can't give. It really, I mean, where do you get that kind of thing? Well, I get it out of Jude, out of the book of Jude, the New Testament, reflect back into it, and I, I reflect it backwards into the Old Testament so I can understand it. But Jude, verse 5, I will therefore put you in remembrance, though you once knew this, how that the Lord, having saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed them that believed not. And the angels, which kept not their first estate, but left their own habitation. Now here it says the angels, which left not their which kept not their principality, but left their heavenly bodies. He has reserved an everlasting chains under darkness, even to the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them, in like manner giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh, that is, flesh of a different kind, are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. And we'll see that. You see the mercy of God, by the way, visiting fire on Abel's offering and not visiting fire on Cain. Likewise, also these filthy dreamers, or these dreamers. Let me tell you, he's talking about certain men, out of verse 4, crept in unawares, who were before of old to this condemnation, ungodly men, turning the grace of our God into lasciviousness and denying the only Lord God, and our Lord Jesus Christ. And there are plenty of sneaky men, creeps, it says. There are certain men crept in unawares. There are plenty of creeps around who deny the Lord Jesus Christ. As one friend of mine said, they're wolves in wolves' clothing. You know, they wear the collars. They like to, they like to wear the, the robes and so forth. There are plenty of these fellows turning the grace of God into lasciviousness. Now they're called in verse 8, Likewise, these filthy dreamers defile the flesh, despise dominion, and speak evil of dignities. Yet Michael the archangel, when contending with the devil, he disputed about the body of Moses, durst not bring against him a railing accusation, but said, The Lord rebuke thee. But these speak evil of those things which they know not, but what they know naturally as brute beasts, in those things they corrupt themselves. Here it says, now verse 11, listen here, Woe unto them, for they have gone in the way of Cain. In the way of Cain. And I'll leave it at that. There's also the heir of Balaam here, but they have gone in the way of Cain. Now what way did Cain go? Well, Cain decided to go his own way. Cain decided to go the way of his own works. Cain decided to go the way of his own ideas, and Cain especially decided to go the way of hating his brother who came by grace through faith. So God says to Cain, why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? Two good questions. God, of course, knows why Cain is angry. God knows why his face has fallen. He is God in his mercy is trying to reason with Cain, just as the Lord Jesus Christ spoke kindly to Judas, who betrayed him. 
the Lord here speaks kindly to Cain, trying to get him to think, why are you so angry? Why is your countenance fallen? If you did well, won't you be accepted? If you did, Cain, isn't it the case that if you did rightly, you also would have been accepted? If you did well, if you would have come in the blood-bought way, if you would have take, uh, obtained a lamb from your brother Abel and also brought one, or if you would have joined Abel in his sacrifice, wouldn't you have been accepted? And of course, the answer is yes. Then he says even this remarkable thing, and if you don't do well, which Cain did not do, if you don't do well, a sin offering is at the door. Now, here he says sin, or a sin offering, lies at the door. Unto thee shall be his desire, but thou shalt rule over him. Now, this is an, an, a very interesting statement. He's saying, here is a, an offering for you, a sin offering, and you can take advantage of this sin offering. You can come in a blood-bought way, the way that Abel came, because Abel's sacrifice is acceptable to me. You can enjoy the sacrifice that Abel brought, but sin is here. Sin is trying to overtake you, but you can rule over him. In other words, you can come the blood-bought way, and sin will not have the dominion over you if you'll come by the way of faith. Now, how did how did Cain react to that? Why he remained? I, I, I'm convinced Cain got even more angry with Abel to realize that so accepted was his sacrifice, so acceptable was Abel as a priest unto God, that Cain could even come through his brother, bringing him there through his, through his brother's sacrifice, and become acceptable. He hated his brother even more. And Cain, it says in verse 8, talked with Abel, his brother. He said to him, let's go out in the field. He premeditated a murder, and it came to pass when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. This premeditated murder. By the way, Cain, being the religious fellow that he is, religion is always a good reason to go murder people. Religion has ever been the bloodiest, nastiest thing that man can invent. Let me tell you, Christianity is no religion. Oh, there's a religion, uh, the, old, uh, the old-time religion, the one of Cain, that calls itself Christianity. There are different forms. You can pick the one you like best. Uh, you know, there's the 12-ounce, there's the 16-ounce, there's even the 40-ounce religion, if you want one. But Christianity is not a religion. Christianity is faith in the facts about God. That's what it is. And, uh, of course, you may say, well, so other people say that about what they believe. It doesn't matter. The truth is independent of what anybody believes. Christianity is the truth about God. It is God's way for man to be redeemed and rescued from his sinful self. So now he rose up, and he killed his brother. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And now Cain has become a bald-faced liar in the face of the Lord. I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? Now, what a thing to say. He's, he asks God, am I the one who's to keep my brother, when in fact he's the one who has murdered his brother? 
there was no need uh, there was no need for anyone to keep Abel except to keep Cain away from him and so he he now boldly with his bad conscience boldly lies to God and God said verse 10 what have you done the voice of your brother's blood cries unto me from the ground now art thou cursed from the earth which has opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand so God now brings judgment on Cain and God says now thou art cursed from the earth of course you recall that the curse uh, was given to the earth and Cain has shed Abel's blood into the earth and uh, the blood, it, it, the figure of speech here by the, by the Lord, he said, Where, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood cries unto me from the ground. And now thou art cursed from the earth, which has opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. And so God now pronounces the judgment on Cain for shedding his brother's blood. And this is before, you see, in, the, in this dispensation of conscience, God has not instituted capital punishment. Cain here is now going to live with his conscience. We'll see if his conscience and knowledge of sin can deliver him. We'll see if by knowing his guilt, by knowing that he was wrong, if he can deliver himself on that basis. In fact, we'll see if Jiminy Cricket's right, that conscience can be your guide, and Cain will find his way out of this. Well, what do you think? Here, Cain says unto the Lord, well, the Lord says further, when you till the ground, it will not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. So he gets to get reminded of his sin all the time as he tills. And then he says, a fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. Well, Cain said unto the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. Or in other words, is my sin so great that I can't be forgiven? And that's a haughty statement, actually. The Lord had just pointed out prior to his murder of Abel that there was a blood-bought sacrificial way for him to come, and he willfully refused to do it. And now he says, is my sin so great that I can't be forgiven? And the Lord says to him, you are going to be a fugitive and a vagabond. So Cain now says, behold, thou hast driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. Well, that that's that's uh, him, that's what he's decided. Uh, he's going to hide from God. I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth, and it shall come to pass that everyone that finds me shall slay me. Now all Cain's worried about is that somebody's going to come along and kill him. Well, by the way, uh, there's evidence there for those of you who doubt the scriptures that Cain knew that there was a population growing, uh, and the Lord said unto him, therefore. Whosoever slays Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. And so God actually places a mark on Cain to make sure no one kills him, so that the, the guilt of his sin will get to him, and he'll do what? The right thing? Well, uh, no, he won't do the right thing. What will he do? Verse 16, Cain went out from the presence of the Lord, and dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. And so it is Cain now going out from the presence. You say, well, what's the presence of the Lord? Well, some people like to talk about that being some kind of 
feeling that they get. It's not. God had appointed a place and a time and a way for Cain and Abel both to come to him. Cain is at that place, tabernacling with God. It obviously was a tabernacle and a place of sacrifice. And uh, now Cain leaves that place. Does he ask God for mercy? Does he stay with God? Does he say, well, is there still no sacrifice for sin? No. He goes out from the presence of the Lord. He will not come the way of faith. You say, what kind of a person would be that way? There are so many, but this now is the religious man. This is now the religion of Cain. And so, by the way, we see in Cain a picture of those who uh, led Israel to slay the Lord Jesus Christ. Here came the Savior of Israel, just like Abel came the proper way to, to be, if he cared to, if, if, if Cain cared to see it, the Savior of Cain in a type. And what did Cain do? Instead of accepting the sacrifice of Abel because he was accepted to, uh, by God as the Lord Jesus Christ came and offered himself a sacrifice that was acceptable to God, Cain instead slew Abel. Satan is called a murderer from the beginning. He murdered Adam. He murdered Eve. Uh, Cain, now a son of Satan, uh, just like those in John chapter 8 who were of their father the devil, murder, seeking to murder and finally murdering the Lord Jesus Christ. But he laid, but, but, but no man could take his life. They hated him to murder him. Murder was in their hearts, but no one could take his life. He laid it down. He died for their sins, just as Abel's sacrifice was suitable for Cain. But what does Cain have instead of love, instead of affection, instead of grateful heart? He has envy for his brother and kills him. And for envy, they also slayed the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what the Scripture says. The Scripture also says, A man can stand before many things, but who can stand before envy? And the answer to that is, nobody can stand up to envy. So we see here in the way of Cain, the religious leaders of Israel, and frankly, my friends, religious leaders worldwide of every stripe in every camp. And so now we see Cain's judgment. Cain is going to be a vagabond. Uh, he is going to be a fugitive. And I want to talk about fugitive and fugitives and vagabonds because it, to the careless observer, to the careless observer, a fugitive and a vagabond may appear to be the same thing as a pilgrim and a stranger. Now, God calls his people to be strangers and pilgrims. That is, aliens. We're, we're an alien civilization. God's own, our citizenship is in heaven, and we're aliens. This is not our home. We're just passing through. We are strangers, and we are pilgrims. That is to say, we pass through. We're on our way somewhere else. We are not the people of faith are uh, in, in our Lord Jesus Christ. In this case, in our case, the Church of God uh, are strangers and pilgrims. But here, these religious fellows who who are called filthy dreamers, who are called creeps in the Book of Jude, here these creeps they go the way of Cain, which is the way of being a fugitive and a vagabond. Well, the un, the uncareful uh, watcher, 
to the uncareful eye or the untrained eye, let's say the uninstructed eye, the one not instructed out of the Scriptures, uh, they, they will mistake the one for the other, and that is how the creeps get in. Uh, as they look, though, though fugitives and vagabonds, they may appear to the careless one to be a stranger and a pilgrim. In fact, what is a fugitive but someone who's running away from something? In fact, he's running away from his evil doing. He's on the run. He doesn't come the way of sacrifice. He doesn't come the way of faith. He doesn't acknowledge his sin and accept the sacrifice, our Lord Jesus Christ, for his sin, but instead he's a fugitive running away from his sin and from God. And a vagabond, that's a person without any purpose. That's a, a vagabond is a person that is headed really nowhere, is headed really nowhere, purposeless and headed nowhere. And isn't that what we see? My friends, let's be, let's be factual about it. Let's be factual about it. Religious leaders, clergymen of all stripes, are marked by this in a lar- to a large extent in our world today. But here we have the problem. We have the problem that we can mistake, if we're not careful, if we don't look at the Scripture, we can mistake a stranger and a pilgrim for a fugitive and a vagabond, and vice versa. So we need to look to God and to his word. Now Cain goes out from the presence of the Lord, and he dwells in the land of Nod. That is the land of wandering, no doubt named after himself, the great wanderer. Uh, I remember the song where a fellow sang, says, they call me the wanderer, I wander around and round. And this is some of the horrible music out of the 50s and 60s that so fascinated us and that you hear such great things about. Uh, Hopefully we can get to that today. If not today, we'll get to it tomorrow a little bit about uh, music because we want to look for a minute or or two that's remaining, the, the short time that's remaining. Having seen the way of Cain, let's look now at the heritage of Cain. It says in verse 17, after Cain goes out from the presence of the Lord and uh, goes in the land of wandering, east of Eden, it says, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bare Enoch, and he builded a city and called the name of the city after the name of his son Enoch. So one of the things we see here is Enoch, his, his firstborn, builds a city. You know, people think a lot about cities. Uh, I know people wax proud of their cities. Of course, uh, it doesn't matter how big your city is. One of the first things you do is form a chamber of commerce and decide, well, we'll make a lot of money together and we'll keep the outsiders out and all that stuff. But cities are really a nasty place. They're invented by a cane. I don't say there's anything we can do about it. I'm a city boy. I've grown up in a city. But we see the evil of man. I can't change anything. But here, uh, oftentimes... I find uh, Christians taken in to think that economic development and civic pride and patriotism and nationalism and some other things that aren't necessarily uh, affections that God cultivates, to just sanctify them without judgment as proper affections. I've grown up in this city of Omaha, and I'm grateful to God that he's preserved me in it, but this is a wretched place where we live. Uh, I've grown up in a wretched city. Uh, in fact, I didn't just grow up in the wretched city, but I came into it, and it was wretched before, and it's going to be wretched when I leave. Cities are the cesspool 
of evil in the world. And all you have to do is visit a few of them, and you can find that out. Even our own little town here, where my grandfather was murdered in cold blood one sunny Sunday, and the murders got away with it. That just, for example, what a nasty city we have. And so Enoch started cities, and that's part of the way of Cain. And don't you sanctify it, because God doesn't. And then uh, we also see the descendant from Enoch was Irad and Mahujael, and Mahujael begat Methusael. Don't conv- confuse that with Methuselah. Methusael begat Lamech. And Lamech is the epitome of the heritage of Cain. And Lamech took unto him two wives. And so we see something else that comes from the way of Cain. We see profligacy. We see sexual profligacy. In fact, the guy has two wives. And, boy, you think you think somebody has trouble with one wife, and whoever has a wife has trouble. That's what the Scripture says. Oh, yes, uh, whoever has a husband also has trouble. Uh, let there be no mistake about it. But two wives, what trouble this guy invented. We're, we're graced to live in America where monogamy is enforced by law. I think that's a gracious thing. I think it's a wonderful thing. But <clears throat> I've been in countries, in fact, I've traveled in countries and spent lots of time in a country where multiple marriages is perfectly legal, and well, you cannot imagine the problems uh, that it creates. And not only does it create all kinds of social difficulties, but look at the problem it creates for this fella, Lamech, who now has two women to tell him what to do and mislead him, and that's what happens to him, and he becomes a man of great violence. Well, we'll look at that if we have time a little bit later, but we also want to look at some of the other descendants of Cain. Uh, one of his wives bears a fellow named Jabel. In fact, there are three guys here, Jabel, Jubal, and Tubal. The first one, Jabel, is the father of such that dwell in tents and have cattle. These are nomadic people with cattle. If you've ever traveled among nomadic people with cattle, they're very hard to get along with. You want to build a house, you want to maybe grow some crops, Uh, they believe that your land is for their cows to feed on, maybe they see your cows and they're like Maasai's down in Kenya and Tanzania, for example, who believe that every cow in the world belongs to them. Uh, Very difficult people to get along with, and of course, nomadic people, uh, very dangerous to the nation of Israel later. We'll just leave that off and talk about Jubal because this is a subject that arises very much within the Christian faith. Jubal is the father of all such as handle the harp and organ. So here Jubal is the father of music, really, and he's a descendant of Cain. He's a descendant of Cain, from which we get the word jubilation, for example. And uh, Jubal, the father, as such, handle the string instrument and the wind instrument, the harp and the organ. And so, um, strings and strings and wind uh, wind instruments, of course, they're beautiful sounding and so forth. But these not sanctified by God. These not necessarily building the spiritual affections uh, in the heart of man. In fact, this part of the way of Cain. And of course, one of the things every city has to have is a great as a great wind symphony, a great symphony and orchestra. We're very proud of those things. None of that is necessarily of God. None of that is spiritually of high value. That music has been a leading element in the misleading of man. And I know this is a big controversy, but let me tell you, 
uh, Christ, uh, music, I heard one fellow say today uh, that every generation despises the music of the one that follows it. Let me tell you, I'm of the generation where our music was horrible. I'm of a generation of music in the 60s and 70s, well, even the 50s, I listen to music, where our music was just plain stupid and was horrible. I, I even brought a song, and, and I'll take it up next time to tell you just how stupid it is. Music can mislead many, and uh, it is part of the way of religion, not necessarily the way of faith. Of course, there are great Christian hymns, but as I say, these are not necessarily sanctified by God.